Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would hear our prayers tonight. That you would hear the desires of our hearts. That you would speak to us and show us our great salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pod, where are you? God, can you hear me? Will you answer me? Don't you see? Don't you care? I wonder if you've ever said words like those. Or ever felt them in your heart. They're the cries of the heartbroken. The sorrows of suffering. And as you go through the experience of suffering and loss, it feels as if God has forsaken you. That he is far from you. He doesn't answer. He doesn't act. You feel abandoned. Tonight, we hear the same words on the lips of the Lord Jesus. We see this forsakenness in the experience of the Son. And as we glimpse through the darkness at his desolation, so we find our comfort and our hope. Through the one who was forsaken. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, we read these words From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? That cry of Jesus is the first line of our psalm tonight. And it might be helpful if you have it open in front of you. Page 554 in the Pew Bibles. And perhaps as Colin was reading the psalm a moment ago... Uh, or as you scan the psalm quickly now with your eye, it's clear that so many of the details match up with the events of the crucifixion. There's the mockery of verses 7 and 8. There's the bones out of joint in verse 14. The thirst of verse 15. The hands and feet pierced in verse 16. The bones on display in verse 17. And the dividing and casting of lots for his clothing in verse 18. If you had never read this psalm before, 
you would probably think that it was an eyewitness testimony written down on the day of the crucifixion. Or a record of what the crucified one said written down shortly afterwards. But this isn't a newspaper report from the Jerusalem Times the next day. This is a psalm, part of the Old Testament, written down a thousand years before the crucifixion. Written down, as the title reminds us, by David, the great, 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 great grandfather of David, of Jesus. And that's why we're looking at this psalm tonight, in this holy week. You see, this week we're recalling at the words of Jesus on the evening of the first Easter day, where he said, everything must be fulfilled. <clears throat> Excuse me. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus says that the whole Old Testament is about him. And points forward to his crucifixion and his resurrection. So far this week we've been in the law of Moses. We've heard the promise of the serpent crusher from Genesis 3. Who would defeat the power of the devil. Even though he was wounded by him. And we have heard last night how the redemption of the Israelite slaves from Egypt in the Passover points to Christ, our Passover lamb, where, as Colin reminded us last night, there is safety and redemption under his blood. Tonight we turn to the Psalms and Psalm 22 as it predicts in the words of the Apostle Peter in his first letter, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The suffering are plain to see front and centre from the opening verse which is quoted by Jesus on the cross. You see, by mentioning the first verse here, it is as if Jesus is linking the whole psalm to his experience of the cross. So what do we find in the psalm? How do David's words tell of his experience? And what does it tell us of Jesus' suffering? Well, you'll notice that at the psalm switches from at David speaking about himself to addressing God. And you see the changes with the, the yet at the start of verse 3 and the start of verse 9. And the but at the start of verse 6 and the start of verse 19. There are three sets of this pattern with an increasing desperation each time. So the first set, the forsaken one, verses 1 to 5. David asks that haunting question, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer to the question. 
And that is the big problem. That is uh, what drives the psalm. David cries out to God by day, by night, but there's no answer. He finds no rest. He just can't understand his experience as he turns to address God directly in verse 3. He says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. He reminds God of how God has always in the past answered his people's cries. Throughout their history, they trusted and you delivered. They cried and were saved. They trusted and were not put to shame. Do you see the problem? Our ancestors cried to you and they were saved. So why not me? Why not now? That word shame at the end of verse 5 provokes the second set of the pattern. David says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. You see, they don't just despise him, they also mock him. You hear what they say in verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. There's a special suffering in being identified with the Lord. And the crowds at the foot of the cross used these very words as verbal blows on the crucified Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. These taunts are especially terrible because of the closeness of his relationship with God. We see this as he turns again to talk directly to God in verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. And again from my mother's womb you have been my God. So because of this close relationship, this nearness that we've always enjoyed. Then the plea comes in verse 10. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. You've always been near, God. But now you're far away, and trouble is near. Help me. I have no one else to help me. As the pattern repeats again from verse 12, we see why there is no one to help. As David describes his suffering, whatever it was that he was going through, 
he perfectly describes his greater son's suffering on the cross. There is no one to help because, verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. It's like the walker who had climbed over a gate into a field and the farmer shouts at him, can you cross that field in nine seconds? No, why? Well, the the bull can do it in ten. One bull would be bad enough, but the people surrounding David are described as strong bulls encircling. Being surrounded by hostile people. Have you ever had that experience of being surrounded? There's, there's nowhere to turn. They're, they're all around you. They're all out to get you. And you feel so helpless, so alone. They're described as bulls, but they're also described as roaring lions. Mouths open wide against him. Verse 14 then paints a vivid picture of the position of the crucified, poured out like water. Bones out of joint. Heart turned to wax. Melted within him. Add to that the the dryness of mouth in verse 15. Remember that Jesus says in John chapter 19, remembering that, uh, that all was now accomplished, Jesus, to fulfill the scripture, said, I thirst. The dryness and dust of death is an apt picture of this longing. <clears throat> In verse 16, the sufferings of the crucified one continue. Surrounded by dogs. Now don't think of the well-groomed Crufts winners. Or your friendly pampered pooch at home that wouldn't touch anyone. Would lick you to death. But these are wild pack dogs. Another picture of the mob that surrounds Jesus baying for his blood. The villains encircle. And then they pierce my hands and my feet. Whatever David had experienced to put these words together. He again gets the details of the crucifixion of Jesus spot on. Remember that crucifixion hadn't even been invented when David wrote these words. It was only invented about 500 years later. Hands and feet pierced. Stretched out on the cross. All his bones on display. People staring and gloating. And then the ultimate humiliation. They divide my clothes among them. And cast lots for my garment. 
John chapter 19 tells us how this happened. The, the four soldiers in the group each got a share. But when it came to his seamless tunic, it went to the winner of the cast lots. What this shows us is that in his death, Jesus had nothing. He had to borrow a tomb. But he had nothing left. On Monday evening, we didn't pick up on it then, but as God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he replaced their fig leaf coverings with clothes of animal skins. An animal died to provide them with covering, covering for their shame. And one day we will be clothed in the white robes of righteousness, provided for us by the Christ who hung on the cross naked, uncovered. He was stripped so that we could be covered. The sufferings of Christ, foretold in great detail and fulfilled in every single line. In verse 19, he turns again to speak directly to God. He says, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Even in the depths of despair and the sorrow of suffering, still there is trust in God. Still there is that cry for help. Do you see it there in verse 20 and into verse 21? Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Now the next line in the Pew Bible, so look at it with me, the second half of verse 21, continues that pleading. It says, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And when you look at that, that's another ask, that's another prayer, that's another please help me question. But look carefully at it. And after the word saved, you'll see a a, a little uh, letter directing you to a footnote. There's an alternative wording to that line. And all the commentators agree that the footnote is the proper wording. Let me give you verse 21 in the, in the order that the Hebrew words come rescue me from the mouth of the lions from the horns of the wild oxen you have heard me now that's different isn't it you see that's no longer a question that's no longer a request 
That's now the answer to the prayer. It's such a sudden change in the middle of a verse that the NIV translators almost couldn't believe it and so they went for the other alternative. But this is what David wrote, that suddenly from the horns of the wild oxen, God had indeed heard and God had answered. As David had asked in verse 2. The sufferings are complete and finished. The rescue has come and the glories are ushered in. That's what the rest of the psalm shows us. And it's what Jesus was pointing to as he quoted from Psalm 22 in verse 1. Not just his sufferings, but also his glories. Verses 22 to 25 continue the pattern because we're back to I again. But this time, it's not the experience of suffering. It's the experience of celebration. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. His suffering has finished. He declares God's name and God's praise along with his people, the people he has brought near through his suffering. Now, why is there such praise? Well, we find it in verse 24. For he has not despised or disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The suffering complete, Jesus returns to the Father, raised by his mighty power on that first Easter morning. And do you remember what he says to Mary Magdalene in the garden in John chapter 20? Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Jesus didn't suffer on his own behalf. He suffered for you and for me. The glories spread even further to the ends of the earth in verse 27. Jesus sends his disciples, actually sends us, to all nations and to all generations, bringing the good news of the Jesus who suffered and was raised, who now reigns over all. Look at verse 31 with me. Actually, verse 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. So even though David 
couldn't have imagined that there would be an island in the Atlantic called Ireland. He couldn't have imagined that on that island there would be a little village called Brookborough. That 3,000 years after David wrote those words, here we would be reading them and rejoicing in the suffering son that they pointed forward to. And yet David writes about us. He says, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. None of us were born, now this might be a bit risky, so I'll go for a safe number. None of us were born over a hundred years ago. So 3,000 years ago we definitely hadn't been born. And yet here we are, the fulfilling of what David foresaw. As we trust in the Christ who died for us. David couldn't have imagined that we would be part of the fulfilling of this last verse of his psalm. But neither could he have realised just how this psalm of his could so accurately describe the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed. So how did he do it? If we were to hand out bits of paper now and pens and ask you to write down a prediction for the year at 3017, how accurate do you think you could be? Anyone willing to hazard a guess? Probably not very. And yet that's what David did. A thousand years beforehand he wrote in precise detail what would happen to his greatest son. It was only by the Spirit of God. As Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit guided David to write in the way that he did, with the words that he did, to show that God is in control in every detail. What this psalm shows us is that the death of Jesus was no accident. It wasn't a big disaster that happened outside of God's control. No, as Jesus says on that first Easter day, everything written about me must be fulfilled. And that means that Jesus knew what was coming in advance. It's why he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. It's why he agonized in the garden. And why he finally prayed, not my will, but yours be done. 
as the writer to the Hebrews urges us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus could only get to the glories in the second half of the Sabbath by going through the sufferings in the first half of the Sabbath. The little phrase, no cross, no crime. And so Jesus resolved to do all that was necessary He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. For you. For me. Jesus was stripped. So that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Jesus died alone. So that we could be welcomed into the great assembly of all his people. Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. As Hebrews assures us, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Even in our darkest moments, even when it feels as if God is absent. God is with us by his promise. Because Jesus has died for us. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we Uh, Rejoice in uh, the detail that your Holy Spirit led David to write a thousand years before the crucifixion. We thank you for the way in which we see uh, the suffering and glory of Christ. We thank you that you are working all things out for your glory. And for our good. We pray that you would help us to trust in you tonight. That we would rejoice in your promise. That you are always with us. We bless you. In Jesus name. Amen.